all students come to the world prepared to learn. Providing um, these beautiful learning environments where everyone's together, trying to help everyone be the best they can be. Authentic learning experience, collegial relationships that, that are ultimately going to yield a positive school culture where, where learning flourishes. There is no artist who paints without their whole life coming into that painting, right? Same with every musician and every writer and every teacher for that matter. If you really dedicate yourself and you put in the time and you're smart with it, uh, you can really do anything with it. It's one of those eye-opening experiences for me in terms of um, what technology can do, but also it really pushed me to think like, what is technology? The work that they're doing while they're in school, in school walls, start to bleed into you know the rest of the community. You are listening to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Here's your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. My name is Josh Rapoon. I'm your host. We're here today with Kay Beach, who's actually now Kay Sturm because she got married a couple years ago, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so, Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Kay, I'm going to start with um, just kind of your background um, in education. Uh, you used to work at a school called SEEKS, which is actually an acronym for the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. Um, but before that, you actually worked in our public schools here in Hawaii. So there's roughly about 180,000 um, students in our public schools. There's, uh, what, 280 public schools total. We are a single unified school district across all islands. Um, so let's start with your education journey. Tell us about your time as a special education teacher at Waianae High School. Yeah, absolutely. So I started right out of college. Uh, I was a Teach for America Corps member, and I came over to Hawaii from Boston, from the East Coast. And those first years at Waianae High School, which was my placement school at the time, were really, I mean, they are the formative years of you figuring out how do you define what it means to be a teacher? What is the relationship that you form with kids? And I think more than anything, it was about uh, the community that I lived in as well. And so I lived and worked in the community in Waianae, and I continued to live there even after I started working in town at Seeks. And that was really um, important to me because um, I think as I have uh, grown and had different experiences as an educator, I constantly look back at those first few years of uh, what it was like to work in a very large school with a lot of mm -hmm. different systems um, and a lot of different innovation happening as well in pockets because it is such a big place. And so um, I reflect a lot on and, um, you know, what does it mean to, to have leaders, different types of leadership? What does it mean to have um, uh, different types of um, experiences for students? And then also having gone from such a large school to such a small school, I reflect a lot on the teacher's experience as much as I do on the student's experience, because I think that what I uh, what I, I got when I when I had left I was um, the sense of um, how a small school has sort of like the advantage of being able to build a different type right. of community. Right. So now the work that I'm doing is a lot in intentional design of systems and structures and how can we, you know, take what we value in those small communities, but also see that lived in the larger school communities as well. Right. Yeah. So I, I have a feeling, I have a sense that our listeners, local, national, global, don't fully understand what special education is. I th it feels like it's a misunderstood um, term. Um, and maybe there's lots of baggage associated with that term. So what is special education? 
Yeah, I think by law and by definition, special education is when students qualify um, based on different um, needs or disability, uh, academically, emotionally. Uh, they uh, qualify for different services that the state then provides um, at the school level. Uh, but I think the definition is evolving as well as we start, you know, as special educators, but also as just educators that are looking to meet the needs of all students. Mm -hmm. um, I think more and more we're starting to look at, well, okay, what does it mean to be a special educator? Everybody right. is a special educator, right? Because you have a group of students that comes into your classroom or into your school, and our job is really to get to know the students on a one-on-one -on -one level and to figure out, well, what are their needs? Not only what are their needs, but what are, what are the strengths and what are the the things that they bring so that you can maximize that to um, to support them in their learning. And right. so uh, right now I have this privilege of uh, teaching an online graduate course for University of Southern California. And the course is a course mixed with students that are all getting their master's in teaching. They're in their first semester of student teaching and they're K through 12. And they're all uh, studying to be different types of teachers. Like some are specialized. I'm going to be a math teacher. I'm going to be a high school science teacher. Right. I'm going to be an elementary school teacher. I want to be a special educator, right? And it's really brilliant to bring them all together. And basically mm -hmm. the course is about demystifying what that special education system is about and identifying and teaching to all the students' needs. And so um, I think by the end of the course, what those teachers in training learn and reflect on is that it doesn't matter what it says on paper. I have to understand what it says on paper, but I also have to meet the student where they're at when they come through my door. Right. Yeah. So after Waianae High School then, and, and I know that these gaps can't be fully accounted for, but you went to SEEKS, which is right. mm -hmm. a public charter school here in Hawaii. Just by way of reference for our listeners, um, our public charter school system started in law in 1994. It started with 25 schools that were supposed to be student-centered, um, that they were going to be demos of student-centered learning. Um, today, there's 37 charter schools with over 11,000 students. Um, so tell us about SEEKS and about how you ended up there and the work that you did there. Yeah, uh, so the one of the reasons that I started to seek out uh, different types of learning. I think part of it is that I have always been the kind of person who, by having many experiences, I can synthesize that into sort of like the philosophy and like the way of life that I'm trying to to mm -hmm. live, right? right? And so having been a pretty new teacher, I was looking for something new that would help me understand education and sort of what it means to be a teacher in a different way. Right. And so uh, I had a friend that was working at SEEKS, and so I went and visited the school, and I just remember when I arrived, it was like so different from any any schooling that I have ever had. There was a lot of, um, the experience really was that um, right from the start you walk in and you just see kids everywhere and you see kids talking and you don't really, like sometimes you walk into a classroom and you can't even identify like where's the teacher at, right? right. And immediately I was really drawn to that type of um, environment of, um, of kids driving the learning. Right. Um, so I ended up at SEEKS and another piece that really drove me to try to find something new was also because I was starting to develop a better understanding of what it meant to try to live your values within your workplace. And right. I think that having different types of experiences and different types of work environments allows you to reflect on, well, what is it that you really value and how do you enact that within your workplace? Wow. And so going to SEEKS, um, ultimately the biggest learning takeaway for me was probably how we enact that as adults is also how we see it in our students. And so that's such the an amazing adult environment idea. was really important for me as well. Yeah, that you that you live your values where you teach rather than them being external to where you teach. 
that you don't have to go somewhere and live a different set of values when you're at your school. You actually are mm -hmm. living the values that you've grown up with and that are part of you and are your choice. Right. And I think it's um, it's a little bit, it rubs up a little bit against what we learn in society too, because yeah. it, not just for where you teach, but like where we work as adults, like where we spend the most of our time. But when we think about kids, they also spend the most of their time, almost 11,700 hours K through 12th grade right. in school. Right. And so if we ask students to not live their values or to reflect on what it means, what their values even are, yeah. but only do that when you're at home, then we're almost like shape-shifting between places that we spend our time. So right. I think like part of what we're trying to do now with this deeper learning movement is not just about like what are kids doing and like what are they going to be capable of doing, but also what exactly are we looking for or what are our kids looking for in like the society that's to come, right? right? in terms of their value systems. So a number of years ago, you were named the Charter School Teacher of the Year. Um, and I know this, this is, it's very awkward to ask this question, especially in Hawaii, because we all sort of pride ourselves on our humility. But um, what, did, what do you think people were recognizing in your work that earned you that distinction of Charter School Teacher of the Year? Um, interestingly, that was my first year out of, uh, as being a general education teacher, I'd shifted over from being a special education, primarily inclusion teacher into the gen ed space. And that was also the year that, um, the doors were wide open and it was, the quest was, okay, what can you do? Right. And I think that having that freedom, it was, it was probably one of the first times in my life actually, where that freedom and flexibility was given to me in a way that for almost, um, asked of me to do what we ask of our students all the time, which is mm, like, right. figure it out. Right. What are the boundaries? Like push the edge. And it's not that anything like crazy or momentous happened that year necessarily, but it was actually what it was for me was the way I started thinking about how learning happens. And so the little things like how do we spend the first 10 minutes of our class? Do, how do the kids talk about what they're learning about? What are the little opportunities that you can give kids that, right. that mic, right? And right. so little Little tweaks like that started to occur, I think, at least in my classroom and in the way that I was interacting and collaborating with um, right. the incredible faculty that I was working with, that um, when it came time to sit down and actually reflect on those prompts that they ask you when you, when you do the, um, the application, it was um, the depth of reflection that I was able to provide to, to demonstrate what the students are ultimately doing um, was there because I right. had been put up to the challenge of you know, rising to that, like to be that, go be that teacher for them. I had a strong sense when I was yeah. reading through some of the literature about it and some of the media postings um, that you were sort of carrying forward the honor as a collective honor, that there are many teachers who had arrived at those doors and had decided, okay, I'm going to walk through it. I'm going to really push the edge. Mm -hmm. I'm really going to be focused on the kids. I'm going to be focused on essential questions. And that, in a sense, your honor is a shared honor because you are carrying it forward for all the people who are doing the kinds of things that you're doing. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good reflection of, like, where I've ended up now, too, is, like, the that there are just so many incredible teachers that do so many unique things and Absolutely. everyone has a different style. Everyone carries a different style. You know, you talk about relationships with students, all teachers create different kinds of relationships with students and you get to students in a different way. But I think the further I get along in my educator's journey, I le I'm learning more and more that my role um, is maybe to to, to support and bring together and to partner with the people that are doing this incredible work yeah. to help strengthen that and to help really um, 
uh, to highlight why the purpose of why we're doing this work. Right. We're going to get into that quite a bit more (laughs) in a little bit. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Kay Sturm about her dissertation. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tyler Kern from Market Scale. We're excited at the arrival of a new podcast series out of Hawaii titled What School Could Be in Hawaii. Market Scale is thrilled to be partnering with Josh Rapoon on this project and can't wait to hear the insight and thought leadership he brings to EdTech. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can hear it and others over at marketscale.com. You click on industries at the top of the page and then scroll down to EdTech. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody, we're back. I'm with Kay Sturm today. Um, she's the founder of the UMI Project, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, so, Kay, I read your dissertation um, as part of my research, and I have many questions. Okay, so... That's a lot of reading. I know, I know. 140, <laughs> 140 pages worth, right? Um, so, um, the first question is, like, so what's the abstract? I know you wrote an abstract at the beginning. So, for mm-hmm. our listeners out there, what's the abstract of your dissertation? Um, well, first and foremost, I think the dissertation in itself, like I, when people talk about how they're working on their doctorate or they're working on dissertation, like I, I think in reflection, now that I'm well out of the process for a few years now, like it was really fun. It was really fun. And that's not usually how people describe no, their dissertations, it right? And so I yeah. think that's really important to me because, you know, we talk about project-based learning and getting kids to do the deep dive and, like, to understand on a conceptual level what they're learning. Well, I think that was an opportunity for me to do that about the way that w- in which we're teaching and learning in, okay. um, in our schools now. And so to answer your question, the abstract, um, I was really curious about um, – the, the role of the facilitator, the role of the teacher when it comes to a project-based learning environment. I was relatively new when I started the dissertation to seeing this type of learning in action. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also was part of an environment at Seeks where we were all kind of figuring it out as well, right? We, wow. we were experimenting. We were really pushing the edge of like, well, how do you do PBL? How do you do that in a way that is not just a curriculum, but it actually aligns with you know, what the school is based on and the vision of what we want for our kids. And so I was really curious about, like, are there any, like, core pieces to this idea of being a facilitator that I can capture through this study? Um, And so that was part of that was part of the work. And then the other piece that I was really interested in and exploring was the the concept of authenticity. And authenticity is considered um, to be one of the gold standard elements through, you know, Buck Institute's framework for project based learning. And I think that word authenticity was new to me in the in the context of education. And when we talk about authenticity, we usually talk about relevancy and real world, real world connection and all of that. But I was kind of curious about more of like the psychology of like how do you actually know if something is authentic and how do you know that you're actually authentically teaching something and learning right and so those were those were my my points of curiosity that drove the study and then so the study was a qualitative study that I actually did over um, at uh, Mid-Pacific Institute and I had an opportunity to really engage like deeply with teachers and students Uh, in the MPX program that just gave me the story of how that type of learning, both past and present, so things that they remembered from when they were doing projects and being engaged in that type of learning to to where they're at now, um, they painted that picture. They painted the story of what does it mean 
cool. to be authentic. So just by way of context, Mid-Pacific Institute is a private school um, here on Oahu in Hawaii, um, and that's where you focused, or that's where you did your field work, right? Yes. Okay, so I want to talk first about something that really jumped out at me as I was going through your dissertation, that um, you were talking about project-based learning on the one hand as a vehicle for reaching educational goals rather than as a means to an end. So what does that mean? I mean, what it sounds like you're you're kind of differentiating between two very, very different approaches to a concept that I think is sometimes widely misunderstood or even mispracticed out there. So what does this mean and what educational goals are you referencing? Um, can you read that quote one more time? So just uh, that project-based learning as a vehicle for reaching educational goals mm-hmm. rather than as a means to sure. an end. Yeah. Yeah, I think educational goals being the the what you what you think of as like state standards and oh we, these are the goals that we've set forth as a school that we want academically for our students to reach and then um, the uh, but then also the educational goals that like, a teacher sets forth in in mm-hmm. terms of what they want their students to achieve. So so like what's what's project based learning as a means to an end or just. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that sometimes we, as we are exploring how to bring project-based learning into more schools and to empower teachers to kind of take that on as like a flipped way of designing their right. their teaching and learning uh, experiences, um, it's really easy to to feel like okay, this is the next thing, or like oh, there's mm-hmm. a really set way that I have to do this, and if I don't do it this way, then maybe I'm not doing PBL, right. or even something like having a, a, a period where we're going to do a PBL, right? Like kind of like that type of language where we've often used that type of language to describe other initiatives that we've tried and innovated on. Um, but what I think I've found through the experience of teaching and observing and talking with students and teachers is that um, project-based learning has to be viewed as that vehicle. Mm-hmm. So just creating a really awesome project doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get to that end that right. you're looking for, that so students let's say are like, going to achieve academically in the way that you're hoping for. So let's say just like critical thinking is one of our educational goals. So rather than project-based learning being the means to the end or just the end of mm-hmm. the whole thing, that you're using project-based learning as a way to get at developing critical thinking skills, one among many, many things, right? Right. But also, you if critical thinking is your educational goal and you are looking at project-based learning as just the project, then you may not, you may still not get to those education goals because what you're missing maybe is the pieces of, uh, that surround that project. So things like classroom culture and how you're incorporating student voice and choice Mm -hmm. and how kids are collaborating and whether they're being asked to take risks. Does the project have any connection to them personally? Right. So all these components come in as sort of like the challenge to us is to start thinking of project-based learning beyond the project that you're designing. Right. So I, I've expressed this concern in other interviews for other episodes, but I'm going to express it to you um, here today, that I worry sometimes about painting with broad brushes and that this business of authentic versus inauthentic feels as if we're sort of lumping people into two different camps. Um, and so could you explain how we bridge the gap between the two? Or am I am I off base in terms of my worry about painting with broad brushes like that? Um, I don't think you're off base, but I do think that uh, one of the reasons I set out to do the study around such a uh, ambiguous word that's a little bit hard to define is because we do paint with broad brushes when it comes to uh, thinking we about do. authenticity. And so um, one of the things that I found from doing the study, but also from um, 
experiences of the observations and teaching is that uh, authenticity is not something that you just define, right? right? So what you find authentic is not necessarily authentic to me. Right. And so if we don't have those, uh, if we don't have the, if we don't cultivate those spaces for students to explore and make those personal connections to the learning first, right. and then help them to see how that learning could be authentic in a broader context, like their community or the world, then maybe it's not authentic. Right. right. And so I think it's more about the task of, you know, really reflecting deeply on how you, how you set up the space of learning for students to grapple with those types of things. And are you just putting things forward because that feels authentic to you or are you giving students an opportunity to reflect on that authentic Right. Authentic so the student ownership, well. the student voice, yeah. the empowerment, mm -hmm. the agency, when it more belongs to them, then you're getting closer and closer to what we would define as authentic right. in that way. Mm -hmm. So continuing on, you know, with your dissertation, you talk about transformative practices. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that means. What to all of the educators, public, private, and charter mm -hmm. out there who might be listening, and even maybe in business or nonprofit or whatever, what is this thing called transformative practices? Yeah, I think the word transformative practices I've started to refer to also as sort of um, your project-based practice or like the intentional structures that you, you are setting up. And so um, I think we all have transformative practices. It's just a matter of how we view those practices. So for example, um, as a teacher that is maybe embarking on something related to project-based learning for the first time, right. it can feel like a lot. It can feel like, okay, I have to totally transform the way that I lesson plan and implement uh, this concept that I've been teaching for years, and now I got to flip it on its head and do it in a different way. But really, what do you have? You already have your teaching practice. That's not I something do. that somebody can give to you or that can somebody can take away from you. Right. So now the power is in your hands again, where you can transform the practices that you already have, routines that you've put in place for years, things that you've asked kids to, you know, uh, engage in for years and find a, and kind of flip the way in which you look at those, uh, look at those practices. Right. So something as simple as a do now or something like a bell work that you do at the beginning of class. Mm. Hey, I've been doing about the same bell work for years. I don't necessarily need to completely take this out. It's not that it doesn't align with the way that I'm trying to get kids to engage with learning. Mm. Maybe I just don't need to stand at the front of the class and read the bell work out every single day. Let's right. challenge them to come in and start on their own. Right. Something I'm, I'm as getting, simple as that. I'm getting like, I'm getting <laughs> pumped up here because I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like at the beginning of my my educator's experience that I was overwhelmed at how much was being demanded of me mm -hmm. as a teacher and that I had to fulfill those demands. I had to meet those demands. And then later when I started teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls and I was kind of in a, in a small classroom way on the bottom end of the campus out of sight of everybody, I started to transform my practices. And then I lost that sense that anybody was demanding anything of me. It was what my students and I were developing together. So it became a shared experience. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it resonates when you talk about it that way. That's what gets me excited is thinking about, wow, I'm actually in control of my own teaching practice and Absolutely. I can develop it. I can transform mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And that's the work that you do with your UMI project, right? right? We'll get to that in a second. Hey, everybody, we'll be back in just a moment with Kay Sturm and we'll be talking about some things that happened to me back in the 90s. And I'm going to ask Kay to talk me through it a little bit. We'll be back.
Within a generation of 25 years, Kamehameha Schools sees a thriving Lahui where our learners achieve post-secondary and educational success. To this end, Kamehameha Schools is proud to share Halau Inana Makapa'akea, an innovation and collaboration space where Native Hawaiian learners converge as a new generation of OEV leaders, innovators, indigipreneurs, and entrepreneurs. The Halau will host and curate various programs, events, and activities that foster OEV leadership development, creative thinking, and problem-solving, innovation, prototyping, and incubation. Hey everybody, we're back. Okay, I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me. I'll do this very, very briefly. Back in 1996, uh, I'm just being open here, between marriages for me, um, I was dating somebody. I'm going to change her name and I'm going to call her Grace and not her real name. Um, she was a student, um, first year student at the John Burns Medical School here at University of Hawaii. And I was teaching at Punahou at the time, and I, it was a pretty standard approach to teaching U.S. history and European history. Um, stand and deliver, sage on the stage, lecture, um, test, write a paper, test, write a paper. Um, and then I started talking to her, and she started describing something called problem-based learning, which is the basis for education at the John Burns Medical School. And I flipped, like seriously, like my whole world went upside down. What was happening to me? Uh, hmm. <laughs> well, I think that as you probably learned more about problem-based learning, you started to realize that maybe that was how you were attempting to provoke and inspire and engage students that, with the content that you, had to, that you were tasked to teach them. What was it about problem-based learning that, that fired me up? I mean, I'm not, I'm not fishing for what I already know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to gauge your experience with educators who've gone through this transformative practice process, mm -hmm. right? I think that uh, when we look around, we see problems and solutions, and we also see questions. Yeah. And typically questions come to mind first, right? When kids look around and you ask them to come up with 100 questions, they could probably come up with 100 questions. Whether they're entirely relevant to how you see things around that space, right. maybe they're not. But somehow right. they came up with that question in response to the prompt that you gave them, right? right. And I think that... Um, uh, probably what you were experiencing is that by realizing that what students are learning in a medical school context is something that they have to be driven. It's a challenge, right? They're driven right. to come up with a solution oftentimes to save lives, right. that there is a sense of urgency there that excites students and engages students and mm -hmm. also like tasks them with a need to learn. And they're doing it in a pod. Mm -hmm. that, that part also really struck me was that they're doing it together in a group where UK are the centerpiece, you're the patient, and we're the emerging young doctors around you, that we're all trying to figure out what the problem is, but right. we're doing it collectively. Mm -hmm. And there's a collaborative component there yeah. that that problem might not get solved without the collaboration. Right. So I began to look at history, teaching history as a series of problems that needed to be solved. And so that, that's where the flip happened in that case. So that lead, leads me to, and it, wow, this thing is going really fast and we're almost coming to the end already. Leads me to another part of your dissertation when we talk about the adoption of a mindset. Um, what, what does that mean when you move from one mindset to another and when you adopt a mindset? 
I think that it kind of goes back to the, uh, the question you had about transformative practices and how the practice is something that is not new to you. You are developing your practice, reflecting on it, and growing, hopefully, within that practice over the course of whatever your experience is, right? right. And so, in, and through that, your mindset changes as well. You start to shift your mindset to see different perspectives, to take in uh, different experiences that students have had in different years as a teacher, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And in order for something, for these, um, you know, for project-based learning or place-based learning or bringing in the community aspect of learning into our our deeper learning conversation to actually work, my belief is that it has to start with you owning that transformative practice that you have as a teacher and feeling empowered to check in with your mindset about how you view teaching and learning. And so uh, I call, so the, you know, as we, as you start to tiptoe into the world of deeper learning, whether you're designing your first project or you are taking students uh, to meet with a community member or uh, maybe tasking students to figure out some kind of medical issue in your forensics class, whatever it might be, right? right? Yeah. You, you, you're constantly faced with the question of, well, how does this reflect back on my teaching practice? Right. And I think that Thinking about it as a mindset and not just a practice that doesn't change um, helps us to feel like we can always move forward and have growth in, so, in the way that we teach. So at some point recently, you decided to move away from classroom teaching and to found the UMI Project. And yes. it sounds like the UMI Project is just an extension of your dissertation that you're going to help collectively people to move through their transformative practices. So can you describe the project? Yeah, so the UMI Project is an education initiative. It's a, it's a consulting uh, organization. So one of the, the goals that I have is to sort of uh, redefine what that partnership between a consultant and a school looks like and to discuss more about these partnerships of collaboration towards, towards these end goals of deeper learning. And so, uh, for example, if you are a school that has a lot of really awesome systems in place and you have a really strong vision and you're working towards that, one of the roles that I might play as a partner to that school is to actually take a step back and help you to reevaluate whether those systems are intentional and aligned with the values and the vision that you right. set Right. And so it's the fine tuning. It's the pieces that sometimes are easy to get lost in the day to day. And what I want to do ultimately is to mirror and to parallel the work that we want our students to engage in at the uh, adult level. Okay. And so if we really want our students to be in schools that are student centered, where they're driving the learning and where they're writing the narrative of what school is, mm-hmm. then I think that we have to do that work as adults as well. And right. so being able to have effective um, conversations between adults and to be able to learn collaboratively and to have opportunities where we can speak up and where we feel like we're, you know, collaboratively setting the norms of our space. Those things are just as important at the adult level as they are at the student level. Right. In your yeah. dissertation, you talk about digging into intentional design mm-hmm. and that you, you I, I want a thing and I intend a thing. And that thing is a community of student-centered learners Mm-hmm. Um, kind of riffing back to the 1994 charter law. That's what the 25 schools are at, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you're talking me through is that process of getting to the thing. And I'm going to do that, and it's going to involve mindset shifts, transformative practices, right? That's yes. what you're going to be coaching mm-hmm. people, guiding people through. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I think it comes back to lived experiences. So we talked a little bit about time earlier on, and so my former um, principal 
Buffy Cushman Page, she used to say, how we enact our values is how we enact our time or how we use our time. And so time is the essential component here. And if you have a value system and you want your school to reflect that value system, then as a community, as a school, you have to look at how you use your time. Right. So as we come down to the end, I've got several relatively quick questions for you. Uh, This one may seem like a difficult question to answer quickly, but this past summer, 2019, um, it seemed to me that here in Hawaii, we saw a huge spike in demand for project-based, inquiry-based, challenge-based, problem-based learning training for, for, for teachers, for educators. Why do you think the spike now? It's a big spike here in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Why is it happening now? What's your sense of what's going on kind of locally, nationally, globally? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that uh, one of the things that this, these conversations around deeper learning and what school can be have brought to the table is the celebration factor. And so when you, mm. see, cel- when you see positive experiences voiced by students, when you see students producing a podcast that's nationally broadcast, when you see students on national TV or you see students um, at the farmer's market, when you go to the farmer's market on Saturdays, whatever it is, when you start to see that work that they're doing, not just as an after-school program or not just as like an extracurricular, but the work that they're doing while they're in school, in school walls, start to bleed into, you know, the rest of the community, you're inspired to see what else can be done. And so I think that the demand and the spike has a lot to do with the fact that as we see students experiencing that type of learning, we also want to experience that as adults and as right. teachers. And we're excited and maybe even um, inspired to to see what can happen and to take yeah. risks. Yeah, I was so I am so inspired by the way that you answered that question that it prompts me to say yes. Actually, building this podcast at age sixty for me is sort of like the project that I never got to do when I was right. in high school, and it's just the energy that's mm-hmm. bubbling up across the state. And the country and the world. Yeah. And I would add, too, that one of the things that has happened to me as an adult by becoming a teacher in this type of capacity where everything is about the student and I want the student to drive the learning, I can't help but live my life now as though everything is a part of that. It's all infused, right? You go and you turn on the radio and you hear something on HPR and you're like, oh, that could be a project. Oh, this connects to this, right? And I think that it's almost rewired our brains because we didn't grow up this way. We didn't learn this way. We didn't go to schools that do these types of incredible experiences. But now that we have an opportunity to give that back to our students and to our kids, We can also live that. That's fabulous. So I want to end with just the same question that I like to ask every guest on this show, um, which is, what could school be to you? Oh, so many, so many thoughts about that question. But I think ultimately what I want school to be is um, I want to redefine how we even talk about school. And I don't actually think that we should be the ones redefining that. I right. think that school is a, should be a reflection of what we want our society to be, what we want the values of our society to be. Yeah. And maybe taking a snapshot of society right now and what we value as a society right now is not how we do that. But asking students, well, what do you want the society that you're going to live in to value? Well, right. that's what school should be. Wow. So what an awesome thought that, in fact, the title of the book could be What School Could Be to Our Kids, that they're the ones who are 
should be in the position, should be in the driver's seat of figuring out what school could be. Yeah. And that's, that's really inspiring. Yeah, and ultimately the one thing that maybe we didn't say enough during our 30 minutes together is, well, what do the kids think? Like, always go yeah. back. If you're not sure, ask them because they yeah. probably know. <laughs> I'm actually working with an organization here in Hawaii called uh, Hawaii Kids Can um, to arrange for two of their students to be guests on this podcast a little bit later in the spring. We're going to do a one-on-two interview with them to see the kinds of things that they're thinking about in terms of policy and what school could be. I'm super looking forward to that. Kay Sturm, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Coming up next on the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, Doug Hugh, a middle school educator of the Kamehameha Schools Kapalama campus. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for most likely to succeed in Hawaii on Facebook at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and at MLTS in Hawaii on Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to MLTS in Hawaii at gmail.com or direct message us on Twitter at MLTS in Hawaii. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, January 22nd, starting at 9 a.m. Hawaii time. Find us at the Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. Video of each interview will also be available on demand on YouTube. Look for What School Could Be in Hawaii playlist on our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii channel. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our technical producer and podcast consultant is Ryan Ozawa. Post-production is by Hawk Media Productions, the digital media program at Kealakehe Intermediate School. The co-editors for this podcast is Marlon Utrera and Bailey Viertaler. Under management from student director May Kanata. All under the guidance of media director Matthew Williams. Special thanks to photo and video contributor for our October episodes, Matthew Tong, a media and English teacher at Stevenson's Intermediate School. And a huge shout out to Ted Dintersmith, author of the book, What School Could Be? an education change agent. Now, off to your next education adventure. Class dismissed. Yeah!